Welcome to Climate Optimus. I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Todd DeShida. Before we uh, dive in today, I wanted to say a thank you to those who've donated to the podcast. It's, you know, your contributions that enable us to bring you the latest on climate solutions each week. If you haven't donated before and would like to join our community of supporters, head over to our website, climateoptimus.co. That's climateoptimus.co. And just look for the donate button. And uh, if you do not want my child to starve to death, (laughs) you will donate to this program. (laughs) I mean, I guess it's worth calling out. We, we, at this point, are an entirely volunteer operation. And so, yeah, you know, as a new nonprofit, having having donations come in um, enables us to to be able to scale up what we can do and, and ultimately make this sustainable. Yeah. So today we're going to explore the topic of recycling and whether it's, you know, a help or a distraction when it comes to solving climate change. You know, I've heard some that have argued that it's just another industry ploy to take our focus off real problems. I've heard others say that, you know, it's really an opportunity for us to to do our part in addressing our waste. Regardless of where you sit, we feel like, you know, it's good to tackle difficult questions. And so this is a perfect one for us to dig into. Did you guys uh, recycle in your house growing up? We did. I remember going out to the garage with my mom when we were kids and like taking all the soda cans, you know, and like, because you used to get the, in Oregon, does every state do this? It was only a few states, if I remember right, that ever did the can. The bottle deposit? The bottle deposit, right? There's still only a handful. I think there are more yeah. states considering it, but yeah, I think there's still only a handful that have a bottle deposit. That's what I remember it being like. And we would we would obviously take all those cans and throw them into these bags and we would go down to the store and you'd return them and, you know, we'd probably buy candy or something like that. But we didn't have any, like, curbside pickup or anything. We lived out in the country, too, so we didn't have curbside pickup for anything. What did you guys have in North... Did you guys have any curbside there? Well, we, we never got curbside, but we did end up getting eventually, like, you know, one of those big truck containers where right it was partitioned and you could dump you know your cardboard in one and you could dump your aluminum cans in another right right but i remember the returnable cans and yeah. you know thinking thinking as a kid that that was real money you know oh yeah of course you, you get a couple bucks off of those cans and i yeah. get you a few candy bars some some gum exactly now we were living high on the hog off those returns <laughs> <laughs> So before we dig into the details of recycling and climate change, wanted to highlight this week's reason for hope. So a group of students have taken legal action against their universities for fossil fuel investment. They're targeting Stanford, Yale, Princeton, MIT, and Vanderbilt. And thanks to the Climate Defense Project, they're using this obscure law called the Prudent Management of Institutional Funds Act. It's a mouthful. Yeah. And the crux of it is basically that that particular law requires responsible investment on the part of these institutions. And the complaint that they filed with state's attorney generals is saying, in essence, investing in in fossil fuels is is not in the the public interest. Uh And while the portion of each of these schools endowment that's invested in fossil fuels is probably relatively small, when you're talking about you know, their combined endowments 
worth 150 billion, even if that's a small number, that's still a still a wow. big number. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, this was reported in in the Guardian. There's a good article, and you know we'll have it we'll have it linked on our website if you want to read more. So that idea could probably could spread, maybe, huh? You know, I was wondering the same thing, and and I would envision that it could, right? If you establish, and I am not, you're not a legal scholar. <laughs> I am not a legal scholar, <laughs> but I would I would assume that you could establish some sort of precedent that it would apply to other institutions. So if they have success with yeah. you know with these five, then why not take it anywhere? You know, right? No, that could be huge. Indeed. Well, let's jump right in here. So, what are your thoughts on recycling and is it going to help us solve climate change? You know, I appreciate how you always start with easy questions, Todd. Um, <laughs> Let's get right to it. Is it going to work or isn't it? <laughs> well, you know, at a macro level, so it, it's complicated, of course. Mm-hmm. But I think if it's done right, recycling does have a lot of benefits. You know, it reduces the need for raw materials, reduces waste, which is a good thing, you know, reduces air and water pollution, you know, especially when we're talking about plastics, and it can, you know, in its own way, help us address climate change. Cool. And I guess maybe the next question is, well, then how, you know, does it help us address climate change? And really recycling can contribute to reducing our emissions in two key ways. One is that recycling of materials requires less energy than producing new materials. Right. And in addition, when you have organic waste that goes to landfills, it creates methane. And, you know, we all know methane is mm. a potent greenhouse gas. Right. So that's sort of the headline. So when we talk about recycling materials and saving energy, you know, there's there's two materials in particular where I think it makes a pretty compelling case. One of which is aluminum, which requires 95% less energy than creating, you know, virgin aluminum. Mm. And, you know, steel isn't really far behind. I mean, it takes 75% less energy than creation of virgin steel. So, you know, obviously it, it depends on the material, but when you're talking about those two in particular, I think they're a prime example of why, you know, using recycling instead of having to go out and, and extract and process these things from scratch makes such a big difference in terms of emissions. Right. I suppose that also kind of plays into the, the fact, you know, that we obviously have you know, finite resources available. And, you know, our population is growing all the time and a growing appetite for consumption. You know, in the U.S. in 1960, we produced 88 million tons of waste, which comes out to about 2.68 pounds a person per day. And in 2018, we produced 292 million tons of waste, which is about five pounds uh, per person per day. So that's crazy. Obviously, it'd be nice if we could go back or, you know, go back toward our 1960 numbers that would help out in a lot of a lot of ways, right? With a lot of different things. Totally. But, you know, there's good news, too. When you talk about recycling paper, for instance, it's a big impact. It, you can use that fiber five to seven times, and it really cuts, you know, the use of trees for paper by... 80% or more compared to not recycling. So that's a big number. You know, that's obviously, paper is obviously a success story in recycling. Yeah, that's a good point. And I I remember seeing those consumption numbers and thinking we're, we're moving in the wrong direction. Yeah. And that five pounds per person per day is, is pretty sad. But, you know, maybe 
as you indicated, there's a way to start moving back in the other direction. And sure. given that recycling, the percentage of content, you know, recycled in 1960 versus now has been by and large, you know, increasing, then really, you know, the question becomes, how do we, how do we curb some of our consumption to, to reduce that overall waste? Agreed. So as I mentioned, the second way that recycling, you know, helps with addressing carbon emissions is reducing that organic waste that, you know, goes to landfills. And, you know, when I say organic waste, you know, we're talking about things like paper or plastics that, you know, that break down through a process known as, you know, anaerobic digestion. And when that happens, you know, it, it releases methane. Right. And, you know, so if you're diverting all your paper and, you know, in theory, your plastics to be recycled, you're avoiding that methane being emitted in the first place. And one caveat here for folks who heard our, you know, episode about renewable natural gas, another way to avoid that methane, you know, getting out there is to capture it and then, you know, use it as a, as a fuel. So, so just another, you know, opportunity to, you know, to shield us from more methane. Right. So given, you know, kind of the benefits of recycling, you could quickly find yourself in, you know, sort of this school thinking of like, well, it's a win-win, right? And the problem is, is that I eat my lunch too quickly. Um, you need a Tums. I might. I eat one of those. I eat at least one of those things a day. That's not good. Chelsea's like, those aren't candy. Right? <laughs> That's one of those things that goes up with age is your, you know, consumption of calcium carbonate. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So talking about the benefits of recycling, including, you know, the benefits it has in terms of, you know, cutting carbon emissions, you know, you could easily kind of come to this conclusion of, well, hey, it's a, it's a win-win, right? Mm -hmm. I think the challenge comes in the fact that conceptually it all makes sense, but the reality is, is much more complex. I think the, the easiest way to illustrate it is to talk about the percentage of material that gets recycled. So, right. you know, if we look at the United States, as of you know, 2018, the Environmental Protection Agency calculated that you know we were recycling about 32% of what otherwise would have been you know municipal waste, mm -hmm. and 9% of that being compost. So really, you know, really recycling just 23% hmm. of our of our total waste. Now you compare that to to somebody like Germany, and you know they're sitting around 56%. South Korea around 54. So obviously some big, you know, opportunity there to improve. And, you know, and even at, you know, 56 and 54, while those sound like good numbers, that still means half of your, your waste <laughs> is just ending up in a, in a landfill. Right. Um, or being exported to a third world country. Yeah. So despite those numbers, I think it's useful to always kind of look a little bit deeper and, I think the the good news is there are some success stories when it comes to recycling. You know, one you could argue that in the U.S. is a, is a huge success are lead acid batteries, and you know as of today, you know with the program that's set up where you you know basically there's a deposit for returning a battery when you're when you're done with it. We're recycling you know 99% of lead acid batteries, which is pretty fantastic. Yeah, you know paper isn't a bad story either at this point you know the u.s is sitting around 68 percent of you know paper and, and cardboard being recycled so you know obviously still room for improvement but i think a solid number mm -hmm. glass 
as of you know 2018 was sitting around 25%. So obviously opportunity for improvement there. And then maybe not surprisingly, the, the bottom of the barrel are, are plastics at, at 8%. In addition, it's also, I think, worth highlighting the fact that some materials can be recycled more than others. In other words, you know, when you look at metal and glass, really there's the potential for for those materials to be recycled an infinite number of times. Right. We talk about things like aluminum, you can melt it down each time and and start the process over again. Paper, I think as you mentioned, you know, you can recycle the fibers, you know, five to seven times before, you know, they're no longer useful. And again, maybe not surprisingly, plastic is on the bottom of that with just, you know, one to two times where you're able to to recycle certain plastics. Right. So in throwing all those numbers out, which may feel like a lot, I, I think the takeaways are that there are some bright spots. There are some things that the U.S. is doing well, you know, like lead acid batteries. We're, you know, we're kicking ass, doing pretty well on paper. The problem, at least from my perspective, when, you know, you kind of look through this, are, are plastics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was really taken aback and looking into this about how bad the plastic situation was. And, you know, you kind of feel duped really as a consumer. I think there's this misconception that, Oh yeah, just all these plastic tubs of all this stuff we buy at the store and you just throw it in that, that bin and it's going to come, you know, next week as a yogurt container or something, right. (laughs) Right. It's going to come back. Well, it really doesn't. uh, And it's, it's really kind of a scandal in my opinion i mean of all the plastic produced since the 50s which is like 8 billion tons of all of that plastic only 10 percent of it has ever been recycled and so the rest of it is just out there somewhere in the world you know it's it's really quite staggering um you know and even something as simple of of plastic bottles you know which which I think I switched to go to. I think I switched actually at one point. I was looking at all the metal cans we had for all this stuff, and I'm like, God, that's a huge waste. You could just use one container and use a big bottle. Well, come to find out, only 30% of them are ever recycled. And of that 30%, only one-fifth of them are ever processed to become a new bottle or a new a new receptacle of some kind. So... Yeah, pretty sad. It's pretty sad story. The plastic is. Yeah, I, I mean that was definitely my takeaway as well. You know, sure there's there's improvements that could be made on you know some of these other products, but but plastic was really one you know that that stood out as as the sore thumb. Yeah. Well, and and for me that kind of led to sort of follow on questions of like, well, you know, what are the underlying issues there, right? Mm-hmm. And the reality is there's there's several um, everything from you know contamination of recycled materials to having you know things be made with mixed materials where you're mixing like you know metal and plastic and paper etc um, you know lack of right. end markets for recycling like it's great to recycle all this stuff but you got to have a market to to sell it to somebody at the end of the day mm-hmm. so if we start first with contamination on the the consumer side of things, the recycling industry refers to this as uh, we call like wish cycling. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Basically, you know, folks hoping that if they put something in a recycle bin, somehow it's going to find its way to to the right people and magically be recycled. I, uh, 
I know a few folks that sit in this category. <laughs> I'm not going to mention any names. But yeah, I, I think we've all probably been guilty of it at some point. Yeah. You ever, you ever uh, done some more cycling? I try to be pretty mindful of what I'm putting in there, but sometimes you're like, well, I guess I'll just try it. you know. But the problem is with doing that is sometimes you could screw up a whole other whole host batch. of things that could have been recycled by doing that. you know. So you shouldn't always assume that just because you throw it in there on the big, ah, they'll, they'll sort this out. <laughs> right. uh, it doesn't necessarily work that way. Yeah, that's true. I think my one has always been like pizza boxes. You know, if yeah. there's like just a little bit of pizza grease on the bottom, I'm like, this <laughs> is recyclable. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild when you start looking at all the different things that, you know, have shown up with these recycling processors, you know, NPR did a great piece, this video on recycling. And when they were, you know, interviewing recyclers, these guys were talking about seeing everything from like pool tables to guns and ammunition <laughs> to fireworks and and loose needles so yeah clearly you know runs the gamut that's a very american thing to have guns and ammo in the recycle <laughs> and you know i guess we should call out that there is contamination of recycling that occurs on you know the industrial and commercial side as well you know it's not just mm-hmm. all us the you know the consumer um but that contamination does have real consequences. It led China in 2018, and you know those who recycle are probably well aware, led them to ban materials that didn't meet more stringent standards. And, right. And meant that we were, you know, we were stuck in this place where we had all this recycling and, and nowhere, to, nowhere to send it. Yeah, we kind of shopped around, basically. It almost felt like we were just shopping for which country wanted to kind of be our landfill there for a time, you know, I, I remember when that happened, I remember that being a problem when, when China stopped accepting all of that stuff and it caused problems, big problems on our end, because basically when you're used to shipping all that stuff out and all of a sudden you can't do it anymore, we never had ha- built the infrastructure or the markets to handle any of that stuff. And right. so it just ends up backing up and people either have to store it or it goes to the landfill. Yeah. I mean, I guess it makes a good case for, uh, you know, taking care of your own shit, not, yeah. not uh, <laughs> exactly. putting it off on other people. Yeah. So in addition to contamination, another one of the challenges is, is mixed materials. So, you know, if you have a package that's made with a combination of things, usually means that it's not recyclable. You know, you're not going to take that packaging apart and, and be able to turn it into something something new. I think we've all seen like packaging, food packaging that has a combination of sort of plastic and tin foil that stuff is is not going to be recyclable. Right. You also have the problem of certain things being labeled as recyclable when they really aren't because of available processing facilities and, and markets. I mean, I think any of us that have tried to recycle plastics, you turn it over and you see that little symbol and you think, well, it must be recyclable. It's got a number on it. Right. Yeah, if it's three or above, it's probably not getting recycled. And it's... <laughs> <laughs> there's a good chance if there's a one or a two on it, it might not get, you know what I mean? I mean, it's that, it's really that bad. Which, you know, is kind of wild when you think about yeah. it. That What good is it basically? <laughs> right. I mean, it, it seems like it's just there to make you feel good. And, yeah. you know, in reality, it's not, it's not doing what it, it's not doing any good. Yeah. And I think the, the final issue is really one of ensuring that we have viable end markets for recycled materials, because without it, you know, things grind to a halt. 
it's especially true, you know, when it comes to plastics. Recology, a company that, you know, collects and processes municipal waste, sums it up with a 2018 op-ed where they say the simple fact is there's just too much plastic and too many different types of plastic being produced. And there are few, if any, viable end markets for the material. Right. So if we step back and we look at, you know, three of the core issues, the contamination, mixed materials, and the lack of viable end markets, and we were, you know, able to fix all those, the question becomes, well, what, you know, what's the, what's the climate change impact? It, yeah. Project Drawdown, a nonprofit based in California, has done really extensive analysis on a broad range of different solutions to address climate change. And, you know, out of the 80 solutions that they've, that they've analyzed, recycling falls below the halfway point. Hmm. So in other words, you know, there are about 40 solutions that are, that are better in terms of helping with climate change before you get to recycling. Right. Now, that's not to say we shouldn't be doing it, right? I mean, right. It, it, there is clearly benefit in doing it and they substantiate that benefit. It's not insignificant. I think it just, it's just something we need to keep in mind when we're talking about, you know, where do we prioritize our energy? And while, you know, recycling is a problem for things like plastic waste in the ocean, et cetera, when we're talking about it through, through just kind of a pure climate change lens, it's it's not the the top of the pile, right? So not to say we shouldn't address it, but just it wouldn't be the the first thing that you would you would turn to, right? And and that leads to okay, well, what's what's the solution, right? I mean, given that there's all these challenges we've just talked about, should we even keep recycling? Mm-hmm. And from my perspective, the answer is yes, but it's clear that we need to make some major changes. I don't know what. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree. I think what stuck out for me is that, you know, you have to really kind of look into this and see what the reality of what is what is happening to this stuff after you put it in that recycle bin is. And I think that'll inform what decisions you make about how to tackle this thing. I was really uh, impacted by the one of the guys that ran a recycling center in that in that NPR video when he was talking about the the symbol on the back of the bins and everything, the little recycling symbol. And he's like, you know, I wish this, I wish they would have never have done this. You know, he's like, it's been nothing but a problem. He's like, I wish people would just look at it more as like, what am I consuming and what am I disposing of, you know? And I think that was a key takeaway for me about, you know, reduce and reuse first and then worry about your recycle game, especially when it comes to plastic. Right. Yeah. Reducing consumption of items, you know, that create waste or end up in a landfill. You know, bottled water is a good one, right? I mean, recycling hopefully avoids it ending up in the ocean. I think I was under the assumption that if I put this thing in that recycle bin, it's going to get recycled. Right. And uh, I think we found that it's probably more than likely it won't. So in that case, you know, reusing it, like keeping a hold of something and just reusing it over and over is going to be a better choice, right? And then obviously the best choice is just don't buy bottled water anymore you know, filter water and use a, you know, a metal bottle that you reuse and put put water in. That's going to be the best choice there. So also getting re- rid of single-use plastics, that's huge. And like we've talked about, you know, our choices are limited. Industry's stance has been to kind of put this stuff back on the consumer a lot. Littering's right. our fault. 
you know, or we just need to recycle. They don't need to stop creating this stuff. We just got to recycle it. And in looking into this, you start to see a common theme that we've seen before. There was a NPR story called The Wasteland, and they looked at plastic recycling. And basically, they found that back starting in the 70s, you know, big oil and the chemical companies knew then that plastic recycling was really not going to work. Right. They found out that it was just too expensive, that you couldn't do it multiple times, that the sorting of plastic was going to be ultra expensive and probably not likely. It reminded me, it was like deja vu. It reminded me of big oil and their propaganda about climate change when they knew that it was causing a problem. And they basically did the same thing here with plastics. They said, we got a problem here. And they said, well, the problem is the perception. We just got to put out an ad campaign so that we can keep selling plastic. And that's what they did. And so really, part of the recycling push came from them. I mean, you remember the Ironized Cody or whatever? uh, Oh, yeah. Keep America clean or whatever it was. uh, You know, keep it off the street. Just put it in that recycle bin, you know. But as we know, it really, it didn't happen, right? It was, it was kind no. of a farce. So, so when it comes to plastic, yeah, I think, I think we just got to find a way to, to use much less of it. But the good news is, is there's some other stuff, aluminum, paper, some of this other stuff I think is pretty viable stuff to recycle. Yeah, it's, it's pretty frustrating when you see that it's just, it's really the same game over again. Yeah. You know, rather than the industry recognizing they, have a problem and yeah. having some integrity and saying, well, I guess we need to modify our product. It's like, well, hey, it's a lot cheaper just to modify public perception. So we're going to go out and do that instead. They're trying um, it again. I mean, they're they're trying the same game again. You know, they're claiming they're going to create all this new plastic and they're going to recycle it all by 2040. But I just, I doubt it's going to happen. <laughs> well, it's, that's the same thing with the oil companies saying they're not going to, you know, they're going to curb their carbon emissions, right? They're right. going to reach net zero. And, you know, you ask them about progress and, and you just get this silence. <laughs> Crickets. Yeah. Right. I mean, they're, they're just, it's just another way to delay action. Sure. And continue to, you know, for these guys to just print money. From my perspective, this really just leads into what we need to be looking at at, at a macro level, which is moving to a more circular economy. And, we could spend a whole episode and we should talking about, you know, what it means to create a circular economy, but Mm -hmm. basically moving away from this linear model where you produce something and at the end of its life, it gets, it gets thrown away, Mm -hmm. right? It ends up in a landfill. It ends up in the ocean and, and moving to things that can be reused or recycled at end of life. So as an example, you know, you could have packaging that that biodegrades and as it biodegrades it has nutrients that become you know a fertilizer for new plants to turn into new packaging mm-hmm. you know, aluminum cans in a way are sort of the perfect you know circular solution right right you consume a beverage you put it in the recycling container it gets melted down turns into a new can you fill it up and you know rinse and repeat mm-hmm. i mean there was a report released fairly recently by an organization in in Amsterdam called Circle Economy, and they really talk about how you know this could be game changing for climate change. Mm-hmm. You know, they talk about how if you you know strip out sort of land use forestry from carbon emissions, the the majority around you know sixty percent of our 
greenhouse gas emissions are attributable to extraction, processing, and manufacturing of goods. Mm. So, I mean, think about a world in which we're not having to do the extraction because we're, you know, reusing or recycling stuff in life. And, right. and that the, the processing is, is minimized because we're making stuff that is easily repurposed. Sure. You know, you can see how that would make a massive difference in, in terms of our, our carbon emissions. Definitely. You know, I, this all leads to, into the, you know, the question of, well, you know, how do we make this stuff happen? We're talking about, you know, getting rid of single-use plastics, how we need to reduce and reuse more first. And as we know, you know, we as consumers can can make our, our own contribution to that. But if we're talking about real change, you know, it has to be, it has to be on an economy-wide scale. And there's a number of different solutions out there, you know, legislatively. And we thought we'd highlight a couple here. The first is what's called an extended producer responsibility or EPR. It requires companies to be responsible for their products, Mm. both financially and physically when they get to end of life. So, you know, no longer can you just produce something and forget about how it's going to get dealt with. Right. It ensures that there is accountability. And so, you know, not surprisingly, the, the European Union already has has had an EPR legislation in place since, you know, 1994. I don't know how much of their economy is covered by it, but, you know, huge, huge step. And in the U.S., there's started to become some some traction on this. Maine, uh, kudos to Maine, was the first state in the country just this past year to pass an, an EPR. Oregon followed about a month later with an EPR program. So, you know, obviously there's the devil's in the details, but yeah. having this construct where you say to every manufacturer, you're responsible for this when, you know, consumers are done with it creates all sorts of positive feedback loops around sustainability and, you know, using less to produce something, et cetera. The second piece of legislation, you know, we want to focus on, and again, I emphasize there are many ways to go about this, is really to mandate you know, compostable packaging to deal with this plastics problem. I, I didn't realize it, you know, until we did the the research for this episode, but for something to be labeled as compostable, there are some real specific requirements mm. that, that have to be fulfilled. You know, it has to degrade into non-toxic particles within a specific time frame. Having something like that gets rid of this this plastics problem that just keeps growing, you know, by the day. I think that could be huge. So just to, you know, to recap, recycling is imperfect, but it still has value. We just need to work on some things to make it better, right? And in the case of things like, you know, paper and cardboard, aluminum, et cetera, it feels to me like focus should be how can we get those percentages up, right? How can yeah. we and glass contamination? Yeah, and glass. and For sure and increase those percentages and whether that's through education or you know making sure that everyone has access to curbside recycling it seems to me that's that's a benefit when we talk about recycling through a climate change lens again i don't want to to diminish the value because it does have value i just think the the important you know the takeaway for me is that we need to remember that there are other much larger things that we need to focus on first so Let's not let's not forget about recycling and its climate benefits, but let's not, you know, 
let's not bet, bet the future humanity yeah. on, on recycling. And then, you know, I think the, the upside is there are, you know, a number of, of good solutions to, to help improve the recycling situation, whether that's, you know, getting rid of single use plastics, putting in place legislation like, you know, extended producer responsibility where you're requiring companies to, you know, take ownership of their goods from kind of cradle to grave. Mm -hmm. You know, my takeaway is that we really need to focus on passing some of these improvements so that we can make recycling, I think, the success that it's envisioned to be. I I think another thing that that could be interesting to have an impact on on this would be a carbon tax or carbon pricing. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, uh, certainly as it relates to, to plastics. Yeah. With that in mind, you know, the question is always, what can we do? And, you know, this week we'd like to ask everybody to, you know, call on your state legislators to, you know, mandate compostable packaging and to, to pass an extended producer responsibility program, you know, assuming you're, you're outside of, of Maine and Oregon. I think there's opportunity to probably push on this both at a federal and state level, but, you know, a lot of good things happen at a federal level because you have kind of a critical mass of states adopting them. And so, you know, I think being able to pass, you know, those two measures in multiple states creates that momentum that we need to see it happen at a a federal level. Yeah, it kind of twists their arm if enough of them get on board and big states like California, right? It kind (laughs) of pushes the feds to kind of have to follow along. Totally. And, you know, as always, we'll have talking points on our website and links so that you can feel ready when you, uh, when you send that message on. So thanks everybody for tuning in. That's it for our episode this week. Come back and join us again for more climate solutions, reasons for hope and ways each of us can make a difference. Climate Optimus is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. And don't forget to check us out on social at Climate Optimist Podcast. Thank you.